Welcome to the Horror Babble Podcast. The Last Incarnation by Wallace West He sat upon a lichen-covered stone, this grey ghost of what once had been a man, and stared greedily at the dim scene before him. It was a boy's bedroom into which he peered, as through a dark curtain. An eight-year-old tot lay writhing there in the torment of fever. Over him bent a grey-haired physician, his fingers upon the flattering pulse. Nearby sat the parents, the mother asleep of exhaustion in her chair, the father, his eyes wide and dry, seeming to be throwing every effort of his will toward aiding the tortured little body on the bed. "'Do you think he has a chance, doctor?' whispered the father, brushing his hand across his face as though the moth-like wings of death had brushed him. "'Perhaps,' responded the physician. "'This is the crisis. If he rallies, we can save him.' Crouched on his rock, close beside the tumbled bed, and yet as immeasurably distant from the room as if he had been on the farthest star, the shadow licked its lips and waited, talons half outstretched, as if to throttle the frail form between the sheets. "'Save him!' sneered the phantom. "'Oh, yes, by all means, you mustn't let him die.' He looked about him. Despite the fact that it was broad daylight in the sick-room, this region in which the naked wraith crouched vulture-like upon its rock was shrouded in almost impenetrable gloom. Here and there could be discerned floating blobs of red phosphorescence. Not far away loomed what appeared to be a wall of rock which extended upward into the darkness. The faint gleams which now and then drifted by served to illuminate stretches of broken ground thickly strewn with boulders. The creature on the rock turned its attention again to the sick-room. There was no change. A thermometer in the doctor's hand indicated that the fever had crept up a degree in the past hour. "'Well, let it rise,' smirked the ghost. "'Let the heat creep up until it drive the boy's spirit—his soul, if you please—out into that vast land of shadows from which some return strangely changed, and others return not at all.' The thing's talon suddenly curled in fury. Why should he wander in these cursed glades, playing silly mad pranks with those others who also had lost the right to possess that greatest of treasures—a body? A body soft and warm and strong, capable of strange pleasures and sweeter vices. He deserved something better than this. He had been a king in his day. Still hungrily eyeing the bed— the ghost's fancy flitted back to those times when he had ruled, drunk deeply, lusted with fair women, slaughtered and schemed out in that pleasant world of sunshine, of which he now could catch glimpses only at high noon. He thought of sunny Italy, when he, as Cesare Borgia, Duke of Romagna and Valentinois, had ruled with a bloody hand. That was clever— the way he had poisoned his pretty brother-in-law, the Duke of Bichelieu. He shouted with gleeful laughter at the memory. In the sick-room, the father started and looked out of the window, 
as though he had heard some evil sound, whereat the ghost laughed harder. That was good, looking out the window, and he sitting right by the bed. His thoughts wandered back again into the old pleasant lives he had lived before the law of karma began to get its fateful hold upon him. One hundred forty men and six women had climbed the scaffold, while he ruled Florence's Cosimo de' Medici, besides the countless others who had died by the daggers and poisons of his gay assassins. That time when he had been an inquisitioner, also sent his hands rasping against each other in glee. But the old brave days had gone from him during recent incarnations. The mountain of evil karma, which he had been building up since the days of Nineveh and Babylon, had borne him slowly downward during these last centuries. He shivered at the thought of the few short years when he had crawled and snivelled about the rice-flats of Shantung as a coolie. His last life had been worse than that, though, spent among the off-scourings of Limehouse. And then, after a knife had been driven between his ribs in a waterfront brawl, he had awakened in this foul place, where it was borne upon him by the brood which inhabited the fetid hills and valleys, that there would be no more sweet bodies entrusted to his care. He had been tried, generation after generation, and found wanting. Each time his sins had dragged him a little farther down, each time he had been given a chance to improve, and each time he had tossed it away for gold and fair women and power. This was the end, they said. He would linger on a few years, or centuries, or eons, and finally what was left of his soul would wither away, cut off as it was from the light of the sun, that giver of all life. And he would float about forever as one of those phosphorescent astral corpses which furnish the only light in this infernal region. Suddenly the wraith leaped to its feet on the bed. The boy had stirred and shouted incoherently in delirium. Had the time come? But the frenzy passed, and the onlooker resumed his seat on the slimy lava block. Well, he resumed his meditation. Why hadn't they let him know what he had been doing? Of what use this ability to remember his past blunders, now that it was too late? He could have been a good man. Really, there had been much good in him, at least at first. Although a good many people died sudden and painful deaths, in Florence and Romagna and Valentinois, the people had built monuments to Borgia and de' Medici after their deaths. Wasn't the Inquisitioner upholding the hands of the Church? His mood changed. No, he had been lying to himself. He had gone down the wide purple way for the pure joy of it, bending people to his iron will to test his power being cruel because life was short, and one was a long time dead. And now, in this Ultima Thule, he had discovered suddenly that he had guessed wrong, that instead one was a long time alive. For a while, indeed, he had even enjoyed playing tricks on good spiritualists, giving malicious messages through their mediums, causing Ouija boards to write obscene words which 
startled gentle maiden ladies trying to get in touch with their dear departeds. But memories of the old brave days in Italy had spoiled such vicarious evil-doing for him. First he had become bored. Then, when a leering companion whispered one day that there was no way out, that there would be no more incarnations, that he was in a hell more real than that envisioned by any inquisitioner, he had gone mad, and howled about the stony glens and ledges like those poor things making their last struggle against dissolution into phosphorescence. But there was a way out—a cunning little thing, with three legs and a gaunt twisted head, had whispered it to him one day, as he lay beating his head against a rock in the darkness. Listen, it had simpered. Wait until some human is in the last throes of sickness, and has relaxed his will to live. Wait until he is driven out of his body and mind by burning fever. Then break the slender thread which binds body and soul together. Replace his spirit with your own. Many of us have done it. It means one life more, at least. And if you do it once, you can continue indefinitely. It is the one loophole in their armour. But if you try and fail, you will never have another chance. And the malformed thing had winked one roomy eye at him, and slithered away. So he crouched here in the sick-room, bent on doing the foulest deed of all his thousands of incarnations, bent on casting an innocent soul into outer darkness, and inserting his soul-spirit into its shrinking body. But, he defended himself, he had never been given a chance. Take that last life, when as Barry Spivens he had thieved from London wharfs, and died with a rusty knife in his lung. What had started him that time on what the mission preachers called the downward path? His eyes envisioned the night when his drunken father had kicked him out of the house into a blizzard. He had crouched against the door, begging and pleading to come in, until he slumped down in the snow, and knew nothing more. He had lost an ear and several fingers and toes from frostbite that night, and had consecrated himself to crime and murder as a revenge against the bitter world under the tutelage of a wharf-rat who had found him and carried him home to a shack beneath the wharves. He fancied he could still hear his own childish voice whimpering, "'Daddy! I'm cold, Daddy! Please let me in, Daddy! Please let me!' What had once been Barry Spivens came to itself with a start. The poignancy of that memory had made him forget his purpose for a moment. In the sick-room the figure on the bed was lying quite still, while the doctor bent over it, an ear to the heart. Then Spivens heard again the cry, which he had thought to be an echo from his own childhood. "'Please, Daddy, I'm awful cold. Oh, Daddy, where are you? I'm scared.' The voice rose to a wailing, agonized scream. Spivens leaped from his rock. The expected had happened. Spirit and body had become divided by the intense heat of fever. The boy was wandering temporarily across the border of his own dark land. Now was his chance. Mouth drooling, fingers working, he leaped upon the bed, 
hold his invisible form upon the boy's body, placed his lips against its mouth, tore at the slender but silver thread of ectoplasm, which still connected body and soul. But again came that wailing cry, "'Daddy! Daddy, don't send me away in the dark, Daddy! Can't you hear me? Come and find your little boy!' Involuntarily, Spivens turned his head from the task before him, and glanced into the surrounding darkness of his ghost realm. Well, he knew that the boy, his eyes unaccustomed to the darkness, would wander farther and farther away, now that he had broken that slender ectoplasmic thread. The ghostly glow from the earthly room faintly lit the lichened rocks. They seemed covered with snow. Daddy, I'm awful cold. The voice was fainter. Cursing in all the languages he had learned in his many lives, Spivens leaped from the bed. By God, he had never tortured children. He couldn't start now. He stumbled wildly over the rocks after the little white figure, which was wandering about far down the gorge, its hands outstretched like those of a blind person. Bobby Marshall opened his eyes and stared up into those of his father. The fever had broken. The crisis was past. "'It's funny,' the boy laughed weakly. "'I thought I got lost. An ugly man found me and brought me home. He was cussing something awful, crying at the same time. Was he a good man, Daddy? You said only bad people swore. "'He must have had some good in him anyway, if he brought you back,' soothed the father, while the doctor smiled and poured some medicine into a glass. On the other side of the veil— the ghost of Barry Spivens howled with wolfish laughter. Turning from the scene of his defeat, he fled downhill into the blackest of the gorges, his passage stirring a group of phosphorescent blobs into apparent life for a moment. He had failed, and the three-legged thing said that after one failure, the barrier could not be broken. Suddenly, he stopped in amazement the darkness of the bleak land, which had been unbroken by star or moon since his arrival, seemed lightning there across the ridges, as though in a faint foreshadowing of dawn.